Yomelis. Welcome to the Naked Mennonite, the podcast that's for all of uh, Menno Simons' black sheep, you know. Uh, I, of course, am your host, Stephen Harder, and you know my parents, Helena and Diedrich uh, Harder, out in, they were farming out there in Grunthal, of course. Uh, and we have got a wonderful episode of the the podcast here for you today. I know usually you're used to me dialing up someone on the old party line here, you know, and then we have a nice chitty chat uh, about their experiences as as a Mennonite, but this is going to be a different time here today because I am sitting in the kitchen with Joe Penner and Gary Martins. How are both of you doing here today now? Well, we we were pretty good. <laughs> well, I hope you can continue being pretty good, too, oh, yeah. you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and how are you today, Joe? I have my coffee. I'm good. Wonderful. Wonderful. Just wonderful. And today, well, we're actually very interested in hearing a little bit more about uh, Joe and her father, who has, you know, since passed on. But we want to... Uh, you know, learn a bit about his story uh, and be able to pay some respect to that and and learn a bit more about uh, his experience as as a Mennonite who maybe didn't quite fit in with with the rest of the flock, you know. So I'm very, uh, very grateful to be here with you and I can't wait to learn more about your dad and, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of life that he led and uh, the impact that he had on the people around him. Um, but obviously, first things first, this is the Naked Mennonite podcast, so that means we have to be two things. Now, ordinarily, I have to be, you know, my guest and I, we both have to be in our separate places and, you know, like, naked, obviously. Uh, but that's obviously not possible here because we're in person. Uh, but I found a workaround, like we always do when something doesn't make sense. So I can confirm that underneath my clothes, I am naked. Are, are you two able to, you know, confirm that as well? Yes. yes? Absolutely. Okay. okay. I won't think about that. That would be very inappropriate here, you know. Uh, but I will just take you uh, at face value when you say that you are. Okay. That's wonderful. And then can you give me just a little bit uh, a picture of who you are. You're living here in Steinbach, right? Were you both yes. raised in the area here or... How did that work for you? I was born and raised in Blumenhof. Mm. Is that is that the same as Blumenort? No. Oh, that's <laughs> different yet. Oh, no. not yet. Where's Blumenhof? I haven't heard of this one. Blumenhof is east of Blumenort oh. on the other side of the highway. Okay. And we were the heathens. No. Yes. No. Luminort was sacred. Luminhop not so much. Interesting. But we wow. were crusty farmers. Like okay. Guys. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. So it's kind of like the Morden of Morden Wankler. Yes. Exactly. Okay. Like I get it. Okay. And Gary, what's your background? My story is that I grew up in Kleefeld. Kleefeld. Oh, yes. that's good yes. stock there. Oh, There's yeah. some good Kleefelders yeah, yeah, out yeah. there. Yeah, we had hockey games against people in Gruntal. Oh, okay, okay. Oh, yeah. Gotcha. They yeah. probably played dirty, didn't they? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. not oh, yeah. Kleefelders, though. No. Because you've got, like, two EMCs and two, one EMMC. No, no, no. Nope. We have we have an EMC and Yo. Haldeman. Oh, just the two? Yeah. Get out. I know. I know. 
Not yet. Yeah, not a lot of choice. Oh, wow. We. I, I haven't yet fully understood where the Haldemans fit into the family. Are they in or are they out? I'm not positive yet. I need to get to the bottom of the Haldemans and the Hutterites and, you know, all of them people. But that's maybe a conversation for another time, you know. Yep, yep. So, uh, Joe, uh, what was your father's name? Uh, and what, why do you think that, uh, you know, who was he that, you know, made him like yeah, a black sheep? What, what was it about him that uh, didn't, uh, you know, allow him to, to fit in within his, you know, Mennonite context? Well, he was born uh, to a big family. His name was Henry Taves. Okay. And he was... Um, was he the third or the fourth oldest in the family? And he was a prankster. Mm. He loved to joke around. He didn't take a whole lot of things seriously. And his father didn't think he was funny. Mm. And so his father needed to discipline him more than any of the others. And at the age of 15, my dad decided he'd had enough discipline. Mm. And so he ran away from home and was gone for a long time, many years. From And that's from Blumenhoff, right Blumenhof, there? Blumenhoff, yeah. Okay, so yeah. then he decided to leave. So um, so, it, so, that was at age 15 that he left. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, like, was was his family like a good church-going Mennonite family oh, then? absolutely, oh, very, okay. very much so, yes. Gotcha. Yeah, they were very... Uh, so maybe going to church in the Blumenort EMC? Yeah, Blumenort or? would have been it. Okay. Yeah, okay. they were kind of halfway between Steinbeck and Blumenort. But Blumenort, Ridgewood wasn't there yet, so Blumenort would have been the EMC church if they went to. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. Or Kleingemeinde, right? Kleingemeinde, okay. yeah. Okay, interesting. Okay, so, so your father, age 15, he's not fitting in, and he's uh, got, uh, you know, maybe some... Like, I guess some people might call that an abusive background. Maybe not everyone, but I think some people might say that that was an abusive background. Um, and then he decides to leave. So where does he go? What does he do at age 15? Did he get a job at the IGA, bagging groceries or, or no, what? No, when you run away from home, you have to be a bit, you have to run away a little further than oh, Steinbeck. Like brokery. Oh, that wouldn't have been far enough. Not oh. even Giroux. No. No. Well, no. how much further can you get? Well, he actually ran to the States. <sighs> and he boarded a, a train and he traveled by train, just like all the other hobos during that how era. Did, how did he afford a train ticket? He just jumps on the trains. <gasps> they slow down. <laughs> and then you could jump on <laughs> And then when they slow down again in a little town, then he would jump off and see if he could find some little job to do. And this is how he traveled. And you said that he actually ended up as far south as Venezuela. Yes. There's evidence that he went down there. He went as far south as Venezuela. Oh, wow. Well, I guess you need a vacation while you're a hobo, right? (laughs) Right. Looking for work. Exactly. Down to Venezuela, why not? get some sunshine down there exactly oh, could do that yeah. maybe i wonder yeah. if i can still do that i'm sure you could oh, probably <laughs> i hear the train security is very yeah. lax these days <laughs> so he's uh riding the rails and what kind of life is he leading obviously he's not leading a very Mennonite life it doesn't no, sound like unless no, they're no. 
just he spent out. a lot of time with uh, with men and women that were doing the same thing he was doing that hmm. were and uh, this was uh, the recession came or the depression came so this was during the depression and uh, there were a lot of people who were out of work and had no place to go and especially teenagers that um, they needed to leave their homes and look for work somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So he, he actually found found some employment at the circus or, or a community to take him in, right? Yes, there was a, there was a part of his life. And like a lot of this is not um, chronological. Mm. Let's just say oh. he did run with the circus for a few years, and he trained dogs. Oh, he taught them how to jump through hoops and how to speak when they're supposed to speak, and and he used to say that. The hardest thing to teach a dog is not to fetch, but to take something from you and carry it away and leave it there. A dog does not want to leave something. He wants to bring it back to his master. And he said that was the toughest thing to teach a dog. Oh, wow. <laughs> and on the home farm, he he got the dog. They were They were chicken farmers. And he got the dog to carry the dead chicken to the manure pile and leave it there. And that was a real challenge to teach the dog to do this. Nice. Yes. Oh, wow. I had never <laughs> thought about that, but yeah, I've never seen a dog do that. No. I know. That would take well, a and our dog, Buster was his name. He actually would cheat every once in a while. He would take the dead chicken to pass the trees and not all the way to the manure pile. And he'd come back a little bit too soon. And then my dad would go, Buster... <laughs> and then he and, would and then, and then Buster would turn his ears would be down and his tail was down and he would ba- go back through 10 feet of snow of course in the winter yeah. and he had very short legs <laughs> and take that dead chicken and take it all the way to the pit <laughs> oh that is interesting what a precious story huh so he's training dogs for a circus and what what other kind of adventures do you know about your dad? Well, then when he came back... Um, well, while he was in the States. Yes, okay. he came back from the States. He was there actually illegally, mm-hmm. but I mean, nobody really cared at that time. Um, came back to Canada, and that was the beginning of the Second World War, mm-hmm. and he decided to join the Army. And because he was older at this point, um, he was put in a charge of artillery, and so he taught the young ones how to mechanically run these big um, guns guns and uh, yeah all and, the artillery he was in charge the, of that yeah because he was an older older mm. person at this point in time mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah so he came back to Canada so then he spent time uh, in uh, you know he spent time in the war then yes fighting yeah, or, he like, went, would he have been fighting? He wasn't or actually. He was more of um, he was the mechanic that looked after all the trucks mm. um, overseas, and so he wasn't really in um, in the front lines. And when he did manage to get overseas after being here for a few years in the army, that was when they were already starting to tie things up, and it was more reconnaissance than anything else. But I mean, he did see still a lot of sadness, a lot of poverty, a lot of um, people were hungry. 
in Germany and, and Holland, they just had nothing. The war had taken everything, mm. including some of their family. He would he was out there and he would look after little orphan kids who had no parents left and were kind of wandering the streets. And he'd take them under his wing and, and uh, help look for food for them. Mm. So being a Canadian soldier, I mean, they say that Canadian soldiers had a good reputation overseas and he probably was one of those, I would mm. think. Yo, yo. So then he's over in Europe there for a spell. How, how do we do we know how he learned to be a mechanic? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> he might have learned some of it before he ran away from home. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm sure it had to do with all the little jobs he had on his way oh, along the railroad yeah. tracks as he's jumping the the rails from one town to the next and mm-hmm. and uh, would look for a job somewhere and who knows maybe a filling station or a service station would hire him just to be like a a gas jockey and then mm-hmm. he would learn from the mechanics there interesting and and how long was he uh, in the states for approximately what, what's our guess um, well okay so the the war started in 1939, mm-hmm. and so he specifically came back to join the army. And mm-hmm. so that would have been maybe in the early 40s, mm-hmm. and he would have run away in my 1924, 1925, so 15 years or so. Wow. Mm-hmm. But not mm-hmm. just in the States, okay. also, you know, um, South American countries, that kind oh, of yeah. thing. So, yeah. Okay, so your father, he is, uh, you know, riding the rails and he is seeing different parts of the country, uh, like, and he went as far south as, as Venezuela, you were saying? Where, where, what other kind of interesting stories did he collect while he was out and abroad? Well, one classic story um, that was told many times uh, was when he was 16 years old, he wound up in Los Angeles and he was on the side, he was on the side of, he was by a railroad track. There was nothing fancy about it. And there was a lot of, a lot of people who were jobless at the time and who were riding the rails. So it was somewhat of a community. They had a big bonfire going, this was Christmas Eve. And there was a gentleman who was kind of on on the sidelines, and he said, Henry, come with me. And so my dad, who was 16 years old, went with him, and he had this little hut on the side of the tracks and a cot in this hut and a suitcase underneath that cot. And in there was a Salvation Army uniform. He put the Salvation Army uniform on, and he took my dad to the posh part of LA and went door to door. And by the time they were done, the whole bunch of people that were sitting around this fire had a beautiful meal, all donated by all of these people from that part of the community and um, warm clothing, fresh socks, little gifties that they had handed out and all of because of this uniform And as soon as they were done, he folded up that uniform, put it back in the suitcase and slid it under the cot for the next time. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, just to be able to uh, to have that. Yeah, that type of experience Mm -hmm. in L.A. of all places. Yes, exactly. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So. So then like what how did 
Um, what was it like for your mother engaging, you know, in this correspondence with, you know, someone who is a little bit, uh, maybe I'd say pariah uh, in the community, you know, this special friend that she has who's off overseas doing who knows what, you know, like how, what did that, how did that impact her day-to-day life here? Well, when my when my dad actually left for overseas, um, they promised to correspond. Mm-hmm. And I think there was more probably than just a friendship there. But when he got there and he realized um, how what a sad situation it was out there, you couldn't buy a good beer out there, for instance. There, there the booze was almost non-existent. There were no cigarettes. Cigarettes were like contraband. If you had a cigarette and you needed to, to trade it for a sandwich, I mean, that was just, uh, that was amazing because the, the soldiers out there did not have any cigarettes. And so dad would correspond with my mom and ask her for some of these things that she could get here in Canada that they just couldn't get a hold of out there. So one of those things was packages of cigarettes and mom being part of the church would have it would have been very awkward for her to go and buy cigarettes at a store so what she did is she went to the store dad would have sent her money she went to the store she bought them but then she had them ship them to my dad overseas so that her name wasn't attached at all and there that way he got what he wanted and she made it happen. And nobody at the post office would no, suspect No, exactly. That's the, exactly right. But, uh, is this the Reimer store that we're talking about then? The, <laughs> I've knows? seen it at the museum, you know. Who was knows? It Mr. But I mean, that wasn't the only thing that she sent him. She oh. sent clothes for kids and she sent um, candies. And, and I mean, he was in the barracks and they were missing so many of the wonderful home um, meals and foods that they you were used to back home so she would send all these things so that they would have these little treats out there wow so yeah okay so then he spends 15 years you know living abroad mm-hmm. uh, like unofficially yep. uh, going about seeing the world so he's a little bit of a free spirit and a jokester <laughs> interesting that must have made him a very fun traveling companion no doubt <laughs> Look at this. I'm going to just unhitch this train car and wave goodbye. <laughs> that would be a funny joke to play. Okay, so, and then, so, and what what age is he when he returns to jo- enlist? What what age would that have been approximately? His 20s? His 30s? When he returned to Manitoba? To enlist. To enlist. Yeah. To enlist. Oh, to enlist. Okay, so that would have been early 40s, okay. I'm guessing. He was born in 1909. He was born in 1909. Yeah, and I wonder if he would have, um, wonder if he was the only Taves that had enlisted. No, there were more Taveses. No. Yes. No, yeah. Yes, even, Uh-oh. even Weebs. No, yeah. not the Weebs. Oh, absolutely. But not the Plats. No Plats, I don't no, think, no, that okay. I know of. That, 
Maybe they had to change their name. They might have to. Maybe they were Plath. <laughs> was was your father uh, Henry Thames when he was traveling? Um, well, in the States, he was there illegally, so his name there was Harry Travers. Oh, clever Travers. Mm-hmm. You know, to cross across something, to traverse it. <laughs> oh, your dad is a witty one. Witty, yes. Witty, yes, mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, so then he is uh, overseas and he is seeing things that are happening war side. Like, what do we know about uh, the life that he left behind at the age of fifteen? Like, was what was his? Do we know about you know what his family was uh, thinking or feeling? Were they indifferent about it? Were they glad to see him go? Or what, do we know any of that story? I, I I'm sure his mom was was beside herself she was so worried about him Hmm. um she was the little four foot ten lady Hmm. um that was she was i I think my dad must have gotten his some of his personality from her because she was always giggling and laughing and happy she seemed Hmm. to always be happy and um and his dad though was the opposite he 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 seemed angry he seemed to be just angry with life so I don't know what he left behind. I just know that when his young sisters, who didn't even know he existed when he came back, they were in love with their older brother oh. because he came back in uniform and coming back to a Mennonite family in a uniform was a, a big deal. Wow. And so they just thought that he was, it was a thrill to meet an older brother that had seen the world. Yeah, yo, and, and especially one that they didn't even know about. Yeah, well, I think they would have known about him, but mm. just they had never met him. Right, right, right. Yeah. Oh, wow. So, okay, mm-hmm. hadn't known him that way. Yeah, mm-hmm. Interesting. Hmm. So, yeah, he mm-hmm. was like the prodigal son, if you want to get <laughs> biblical. <laughs> and yet, not maybe completely. not quite. Not, not quite. quite. <laughs> <laughs> Because he, he, no, not quite. The first half of the story, not the second half. Yeah, exactly. That's right. He did come back. Yeah. And um, he kept his relationship with my mom mm. all through having um, run away. And also during the war, they started writing to each other. They met mm. the last time he came on furlough. He came uh, to visit the people in Blumenhof, and, oh, and uh, okay. that's where he kind of refreshed his relationship with her. Hmm. And so they wrote all the way through the, the war when he was overseas and, and when he was also at the army base. Okay. So they got to know each other well through writing, and we have a lot of those letters oh, wow. that uh, my mom got from him huh. when he was overseas. And, uh, yeah. She hmm. was a single woman who had uh, who was living on the farm now. She had uh, she had been independent all her life. Oh wow! So what? How old would she have been during this time when she was living on the farm? Um, well, I mean, she she left for a while during the depression to work um, as a nanny okay. in other people's homes, hmm. and some of that was in the states on the west coast and then and then when she came back she farmed with her brothers oh. who were uh who were not married yet hmm. on the family farm wow yeah huh how how uncharacteristic would that have been for the area because i know the stereotypes 
from then. But what's what's the reality? Because for me, the stereotype is, you know, all girls are married at the age of 18 and have mm-hmm. 12 kids, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Well, and this is exactly what Joe has already told me, is that her mother saw that if she did get married when she was 18, 20 years old, this is the life she would end mm. up with. And she didn't want it. Oh, oh. She did not want that kind of life. Wow. She knew it. And so she, she yeah. had the self-determination to avoid that. Mm. She couldn't, she was the youngest of, um, there was eight sisters. And so she often helped them with their babies and with their toddlers. And she went to their homes and helped them cook and and take care of their families. And she saw how tired and exhausted these women were. And she couldn't, she didn't want that for herself. But she had suitors. Yes, she did. She was she very had. much in love when she was 21 years old. And, and um, he asked her to marry him. And she thought about it. And she just couldn't do it. She could not see herself in that role. Huh. And so that was. Uh, so so she was a little bit of a black sheep in that way. That yes, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. a little yeah. countercultural then. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting. More of a yeah. So she had independent thought. Yo, yo. Yeah. Oh, interesting. And so and this and during this time, so she's working on the farm. Uh, she's like when when we say working on the farm, are we like. Uh, in a in a fashion similar to like a farm wife would be working on the farm for these single brothers? Uh, no, no, no. She was out on the field. Okay. So she like would actually, market. like, yeah, we had, uh, or her dad had a piece of land that was south of Steinbeck, mm-hmm. I believe. Mm-hmm. And there was, I don't know how many acres it was, but it would take a couple of days to cultivate with a team of horses. Mm-hmm. And so she would hook up the team of horses and the cultivator would already be on the field. And there was an old barn on that property. And she would cultivate that field and sleep in the barn and bed down the horses for oh. two days. And and this was the work she did. There you go. Yeah. And then she walked the horses from Blumenhof <clears throat> yes. to this new property, mm-hmm. which was probably a full day's walk. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then, and then work on the field and by herself alone. Huh. Nobody else around. No. By herself. Very independent. She was just very independent. Terribly. Terribly. So, and then all this while she's getting letters from Mm -hmm. your father and Mm -hmm. she's, you know, being pals with him? Mm -hmm. Or is it more, is it more than, is it more than just Well, they did. She did go and spend a weekend with him (gasps) on the army base. Oh, on the army base? No. She did like yes. no, yes. no, <laughs> whoa, on the army base. They had like a separate room for her there. I don't know. Oh my, maybe a separate cot. Maybe. Maybe. Least, you know. Maybe. Interesting. So wait, the army base where? Um, Arnprior. Where's that? Uh, it's in Ontario. Ontario, Ontario somewhere. Yes. So she walked out there with no, horses? No, no, no. No, no, no. Okay. This was already when she had a car. She drove out. Or no. maybe she took the train. Oh, I don't train. know the okay. details. She oh. might have taken the train. Hopped on the train. Maybe. Hopped off it. Except she probably paid for that. Oh. I'm okay. thinking. Oh, wow. Yeah. Woman of means. Okay. Yeah. So she's hopping on. She's buying a passage on a train to visit her 
friend, but maybe it's more than a friend then. Yes. Oh, possibly. Possibly. They did get married eventually. That makes it all okay, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. So you don't have any mysterious older siblings. No, well, I might. I just don't know (laughs) about them. (laughs) In the the Steinbeck Monastery. Mm. Um, Okay, so then... So then, so she is keeping correspondence and she's maybe being a little... Okay, so yeah, she's not beholden to uh, these cultural norms necessarily. No, no, she was... But still attending and membership in a church? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, she was still a member of the church, yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. okay. And then she's getting these letters and corresponding with your father then. Interesting. And what, uh, what, how did that, how did that, you know, interact with her... Uh, you know, being a member of the community and, you know, being this, you know, close friend to to someone who is not necessarily, you know, uh, a member of the community in, in more ways than one. Like what, what was that engagement like there? Well, my dad sent letters from overseas and he, he told my mom, if this makes you uncomfortable um, being associated with me, and if it if it causes you trouble with the church, mm. he says, just say the word and I will and we will stop corresponding. Hmm. He was very sensitive to that. He knew from just that short time that he had lived in Blumenhof in that area what the church could do and the kind of of um, hurt they mm. could give people if they didn't agree with what they, uh, they didn't if they didn't conform. Conform, yeah. Oh, exactly. is conformity important to the yes. Mennonite yes. church? Yes, absolutely. No. Yes. Okay, and well, so, I'll just take that on faith. Yeah, okay. So then when my dad came back from the war, he was very sure that he loved this woman. Hmm. So he took his $500 that he got from the Canadian government. For, yes, it was a, a lot of money. Put mm. it in his pocket and he went and asked her to marry him. Hmm. And he went to the farm. It was really close to where he had grown up. He was oh. very familiar with, with that property, with where she lived, mm-hmm. and gave her 48 hours to decide. Oh. So he said, I'll be back in two days and then you can give me your answer. Hmm. And what did she say? She said yes. <gasps> really? Yes. Wow. We. So then, what did the minister have to say about that? Oh, the minister didn't know about any of these things. She oh. just packed up, and they went to Winnipeg. <gasps> Winnipeg. And they got a justice of the peace to marry them. Oh, really? And came back to the farm. So then, they weren't really married. Well. Yeah. Not in the eyes of God. <laughs> Oh, so, okay, so yeah, and they set up, yeah, they set up house uh, on the farm okay. and in that community, which also thought that my dad was not, uh, what should I say? He was, he had been, he had been a soldier, which was not acceptable. He enjoyed his beer, which was not acceptable. He actually, Publicly. Yes, Publicly. exactly. Yes, yes, you yeah. got that right. He was a smoker, which was not acceptable. And at that point in time, when they started setting up house, then the church made it very clear to my mother that, that they had had enough. Hmm. And so she was excommunicated. 
Interesting. And so the two of them lived in this community and raised their three girls in that community that didn't think that he was, um, well, they were alienated. Hmm. Wow. Interesting. So what does that mean to be, for them to be alienated? Because for today, if you're not a part of a church, like it does, the, the wave that that causes isn't it's not very no. big because no. there's so many no. other social outlets that you can go to. Yo. Yeah. But back then, the church was basically the only social outlet. Well, they did have the legion, and they had the couples that had, like the other soldiers mm -hmm. that had come back from mm -hmm. the war. And so that was a community that they could uh, join in with. Hmm. Um, but that was more like the English-speaking people. That wasn't mm -hmm. like the, the Mennonites or the low German um, but in the actual community itself, they didn't attend church. So that was just not a part of their lifestyle. Interesting. And you know what? I don't want to gloss over this. I want to make sure that we're putting a fine point on this. So, uh, your father, uh, he goes, uh, and he helps, uh, Canada with their effort, uh, to, you know, protect, protect the world from something that I think is pretty universally accepted as a very sinister force and uh, using force to do that uh, in service of uh, his country, in service of democracy as, as a larger whole, as an institution. Uh, and he, I'm assuming uh, that he's seen some awful things. I don't want to, you know, put words in your mouth, but that seems like that is uh, that they're the silent generation because uh, they just don't, I don't know, have the, the words to speak about uh, the things that they saw, perhaps the things that they did uh, while they were overseas. So he is um, someone who has been impacted by the trauma of war and has sacrificed, um, you know, like, what well, I don't want to... I don't want to, you know, be modeling for the sake of modeling, but perhaps uh, sacrifice mental health, uh, even if he didn't, you know, physically, bodily be harmed in the front line. But he's sacrificing, you know, he will not be the same person ever again because of his time in service of the country. And uh, he comes back to uh, his community, which... Uh, purportedly, allegedly, is a caring community full of people who are, uh, you know, there for the downtrodden and for the least of these. Uh, and sorry, what was their, their response to him? I just, I don't want to gloss over. I want to make sure that I'm catching that correctly. Well, when he married my mom, they, they excommunicated my mom from the church. Okay. Because he was not a born-again Christian. Hmm is I think what they would have said and therefore they would have been unequally yoked mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so he was ostracized okay and that was the care and my mother victim. as well okay that's how they showed their care yes oh, yes that's okay. how they showed how much they loved him right and her tough love is that is that the pat answer to that I'm I have no idea Not yet. So, no. yeah. Okay, so they are uh, living together um, and, you know, they are raising their family and they are doing that in spite of opposition, in mm -hmm. spite of 
any kind of lack of acceptance and they're eking out their their life socially you know finding mm-hmm. different ways of being social when you don't have you know your church fellowship to to be a part of and you don't have you know facebook groups right. to be a part of that's right, right. no social media <laughs> okay uh and then uh and then that's the context that they were raising their three daughters it was just the three of you yes okay yeah gotcha yeah, so so girls. what what kind of ramifications did that have on you as a person growing up then um, well, I always knew that we were different. Mm. Um, we did go to Sunday school. My my mom and dad said, you, you girls, if you want to, you can go to Sunday school. We'll take you every Sunday morning. And we did because our friends were there. That's what we, we wanted to be with our friends from school. And But I knew I was different. And um, I was proud of that, actually. I wasn't part of the status quo. I was different. And I liked it. And, um, and it was a life lesson that I had learned through my parents watching how they lived and how they just, um, anybody who came on the yard was, was, uh, given a cup of coffee and was given a a big hello. And there was, they didn't make differences to the people that came there. So I was proud of that. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. And did it instill in you uh, um, a peace with, you know, living out your life? Like how how much of your mother's uh, tenacity and independence would you say that you have, you know, inherited then? Well, I guess both your parents were fairly independent folk then. Yeah, they were very independent. Yes. Um, well, first of all, my dad died when I was 13. Mm. We were a young family. We were 13, 15, and 17 at the time, and my mom was in her mid-50s. So we were farming. So that in itself made us independent. We didn't have a bigger brother who could go out and uh, uh, get the manure out of the chicken barn or who could go and handle that uh, that barrel of feed. We had to do it. We had to figure out some way of doing it. I have to say, though, that I have broken some machinery because I wasn't strong enough to manhandle it. I would sometimes try and back into a hitch and it didn't click right away and then I'd bend something or break something. <laughs> we did that. But um, but that makes that made us independent and it made us part of the solution. We weren't just the kids that our parents were looking after. We were part of the whole family and we all had to work and do our part in fact my sisters and I um we would come home from school and we would kind of fight to see who could get out of the door first with the coveralls and go and chore because nobody wanted to stay in and cook supper (laughs) so that was kind of a, a little contest that we had to see who could go out get out of there first because whoever was the last man standing that person had to make supper wow (laughs) how refreshing you know um you know just based off of you know the the stereotypes that you know they're the you know the farm wife is the one who is handling and making sure that the home is running um in uh, in an orderly manner to have a home for girls, for women who are working hard to 
be making sure that the the land is running well that is that is so refreshing to hear about <laughs> interesting well my mom and dad actually when we were little um they were both on the field first thing in the morning and mm. mom would bathe us the night before and put us into our dresses so that the next morning mom and dad would already be on the field and my older sister Ruth, she would help us get dressed or get out of the crib or out of the bed, and then we would come running to the field, and then Mom and Dad knew it was time to come in for breakfast. No kidding. So oh. it was, uh, yeah, it was a joint effort. Yo, yo. Yeah. Interesting. Fascinating. Huh. That is. That sounds like quite the the life that your father has uh, led there. Um, and yeah, just, and it's, it, it gives me pause, you know, to think that, you know, he was able to have that life because of, you know, some sad circumstances with his father. Uh, and yet for that hardship, um, you know, he was still able to, to make, it sounds like a good life, um, despite Mm -hmm. those hardships, you know? Uh, he was, it sounds like he was able to to live uh, with integrity according to what he believed was right, you know, and and what more can we ask of a, a person other exactly. than to, uh, to exactly. live? I was very proud of him. I bet. Well, and for good reason, too. This has been such a great conversation. Thank you so much, uh, Joe and Gary, for inviting me into your home here. Uh, it's been great to just hear your stories, and I'm so happy that I get to share them with the listeners here, you know, uh, and just encourage them to to be the best people that they know how to, you know, even if it isn't something that that fits in well with with their community, you know. Uh, so that's been such a such a treat. I really appreciate you uh, giving me this time and, and sharing these stories with me. But, uh, yeah, so this has been Stephen Harder. Thanks again for listening so much. We'll be back again with another episode of the Naked Mennonite. And until then, remember, underneath our Sunday clothes, we're all naked. We'll talk to you again next time.